0: How many of you grew up in a Christian home? Can I I see your hands? A lot of you here. How many of you in your home had words that you could not say in your house? Just about everybody else. Um, I grew up in a Christian home. In fact, my my mom and dad were in ministry, and uh, as a result of that, there were there were words that we could not say, and then there were other words that were like fence words, which meant that they're not exactly the bad word, but they're close enough that if we build a fence around it, we won't actually get to the really bad word. One of those words that I was never allowed to say, in fact, it makes me uncomfortable even to say it, so I'm just going to post it for you, is, is this word up here. It's, it's darn. <laughs> Obviously, the standards in my household were different than yours. I'm, I'm just looking could not say, darn, Dad, I hope you're not watching online today, because it was the fence around the other D word. Yeah, yeah, you all know what that one is. And so, Andy Stanley talks about this fence law that, that took place around some of those words. And I've had a I've had a blast for the last couple of weeks just kind of interviewing different ones of you as at what it was like in your household. And, and uh, some people said, I would never say a bad word because I just didn't want to disappoint my mom and dad. You are way holier than I am. <laughs> there were other people that said, you know, how many of you have ever heard of having your mouth washed out with soap? And there's a few hands that are going up. Some of the younger mothers that I talked to said, oh, I'd get thrown in jail for that. I said, so what do you do? One of them said, well, I take Tabasco sauce and I pour a drop on the tongue of my child. I said, that, that's too much like a taco to me. I've. One mother I spoke to said she created her own stuff and it was called Yiki. If you say a bad word, you get yicky sprayed in your mouth. And I said, what is Yiki?" She says, a bunch of stuff that I took from the pantry and I put it all together. And I'm going, that sounds like youth camp. We used to eat that stuff for points at youth camp. And so there were, there were all these things. You know, we couldn't say G in my house because that was short for Jesus. Um, you know, and, and so as an adolescent, I discovered I needed to create my own word that my mom wouldn't think was going to send me to hell. So I created pig snot, pig snot. If I felt something needed to be said, I would just yell, pig snot. And I didn't feel guilty about that. So I thought, we must be okay with that one. Then my mom said, it's the attitude by which you say the word. And I'm going, have any of you grown up in a a household? There's no way to win this. So I remember in second grade, I was playing football at the schoolyard and... uh, Uh, I can't remember what happened, but I heard a boy yell another word at another boy, and the reaction of that boy that had this yelled at him was was so powerful that I thought, I've never heard that word before. I'm going to tuck that one in my pocket, and I'm going to try it out one day (laughs) to see how it goes. So... One day, my mom and dad are in the front seat of the car driving, and my sister and I were in the back seat, and my sister had a terrible tendency of crossing the line (laughs) and getting on my side. And so, she was being particularly annoying, and I thought, this seems like an appropriate time to try out my new word, to see if it works. And I said, listen, you blank, you stay on your side of the seat. This was, this was before the days where seatbelts belt, seat were required. I, I want you to know that when your dad slams on the brakes, if you're not in a seatbelt, you flap up against the front of the seat. And, and, and instantaneously, my mother responds with, what did you say and where did you learn that? How many of you know instantaneous reactions tell you whether or not you will ever use a word again or, or not? When I got home, my mom took my toothbrush and rubbed it all over the soap and stood there and made me brush my teeth with soap. That was my introduction to behavior modification. I'm I'm certain many of you have had that. It has a cause and effect, and behavior modification continues all throughout our lives, in fact, it continues because we've all modified our behavior because we wanted to go on a date or we wanted to go on a second date or we wanted invitations to other people's houses or we went on job interviews and so we modify our behavior so that we can come across in a certain way I, I have seen pictures of young men and women going to the proms and, and the dresses they've worn in the outfits and you know, those guys put on deodorant for the first time all week, and, you know, just all the things that we do to prepare ourselves for these things. And, and uh, it turns out that Jesus tells us that behavior modification is not enough. It's not enough for us just to change the way that we behave. And so I want to enter into the second part of the series that I started last week on guardrails for the soul. And again, I want to acknowledge the work of Randy Chiz and Andy Stanley in in helping provide material for this. And so, Father, I pray that over these next few moments, you would just speak to our hearts, help us to discover who we really are through the headlight of the Holy Spirit on our soul, and help us to not want there to be any difference between who people say that we are and see and who we really are. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I started this series talking about guardrails for the soul, uh, to make sure that who we are internally when we're looking in the mirror at ourselves, is exactly the same person of who the people that are on the outside see us to be. And we probably have all had situations in our life where there have been things about people that we knew and it was discovered and they were caught and they were found out. And, and our first thought is, not them. What happened? And And then that generally is followed up with the question of, How could they live with themselves? How could they live with all of that going on in the background? Or how can they publicly present themselves in one way and and have all this other stuff? And the implication when we think that or we say that is that I would never be able to live with myself if I was living that duplicitous of a life. But the truth is you could. If left unattended, The current condition of your soul may not be the future condition of your soul, and the reason I say that is this: every one of us knows people who, at one time, had a very um, on fire. We use that term on fire, and for those of you that aren't believers, and that's a destructive term. You know, they they were contemporary; they were living for God with all of their heart. And today we look at them and we wonder, what happened? Well, the reason these things happen is because you simply quit caring for your soul. And every one of us has the ability to turn into somebody that we wouldn't even recognize because none of us thinks that it can happen to us. And the best way to keep this from happening is for, number one, to believe it can happen to you and then take steps to put up guardrails or habits in your life that will safeguard your soul. So the overarching theme of this, this series is this. The health of your soul determines your capacity for duplicity. The health of your soul determines your capacity for duplicity. Duplicity means that you are one person with one group of people, and if I was to ask another group of people that that know you, they would describe you in some some other way, or as it relates to us spiritually, that the person that we project ourselves to be is not the person that we know we really are. There's a difference between your reputation and your character. There's a difference between those things. And your capacity for duplicity determines how wide the gap is that you allow it to be between who you pretend to be and who you really are. And the health of your soul determines whether or not you close that gap immediately at the first hint of duplicity or whether you live your life managing that gap, just managing it. And if you choose to manage that gap, it gets wider and wider, and so I'm suggesting some guardrails to you that help us to close that The first guardrail that we mentioned last Sunday was surrendering your will or surrendering your will specifically to God. I give myself as a living sacrifice to you, knowing that because you know what is ahead of me, you will always lead me and guide me in truth. And that you would recenter yourself every day with this prayer. Lord, I give you my hands, my eyes, my heart, my ears, my desires, my resources, my mind, everything about me. I give it to you because in those moments that I face today where I may have a choice to make of whether or not I will allow there to be a gap between who I really am and who you want me to be. I want to be sensitive and I want to have a conscience that you can speak to so that I can close that gap. And today we're going to talk about the second guardrail. And to set this up, I want to tell you a little bit of a story, and you can find this in Matthew chapter 15, verse 1, if you have your Bibles, and you can turn to it. We're going to be going between Matthew and Mark for just a few minutes today. But the passage of Scripture says this in Matthew 15, 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Now, let me tell you what is going on here so that you can kind of capture this and, and understand. One day, Jesus and His disciples are walking along, and He's kind of got this ongoing tension between Him and the Pharisees, who are very much these law-keeping guys. And, and so, they come to Jesus, and they, and they issue a complaint to Him. And they said, we are upset with you because of the disciples that you have are not obeying The tradition of the elders, another term for that, if you've ever seen that in Scripture wonder, what in the world does that mean? Another term for that would be oral Torah, an oral Torah or the tradition of the elders. And so what this is is the tradition of the elders was like a fence law. It was was a man-made thing that was put up to make sure that you didn't get to the really bad stuff, that you never broke any of the big laws, and so they would create these fence laws to make sure. So, essentially, God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and then uh, supposedly, tradition says that he then spoke and and gave Moses some fence laws or the oral Torah or the tradition of the elders and and says, this is is not to be written down, but this is just for you to go out to make sure that, that you take these so that you don't do the really bad stuff. And so, nobody knows whether it's true or not because nothing was ever written down. But it's in Scripture it's mentioned, and so we look at this and we we recognize that these unwritten laws, these traditions were passed down, and they were passed down so that people didn't accidentally break the law of God and defile themselves and put themselves at at odds with God. So an example of this would be the law says that the Sabbath day there was to be no business done on the Sabbath. The oral Torah or the tradition of the elders said, in order to make sure that you don't do any business on the Sabbath, we're going to create a fence law and we're going to call it, you can't touch money on the Sabbath. Because if you don't touch money, you won't accidentally do business. And you can see that this oral Torah or the tradition of the elders became so onerous and it changed from tradition and through the years to the point where people never knew whether they were living right with God or making God mad or not until the Pharisees came up and said, oh yeah, you can't do that. That's a tradition of the elders' law. Oh oh, yeah, you can't do that because that's in the oral Torah. Well, it's not written down. How do we know? Well, we're telling you. And so the Pharisees... We're coming to Jesus and, and, and telling him, listen, you need to be really disappointed in your disciples because they are not washing their hands right. And so that's the tension that's taking place between Jesus and the Pharisees that are found within this particular passage. And you needed to know that Jesus had nothing good to say about the tradition of the elders. He had nothing good to say about it. In fact, he saw it for what it was. It was a bunch of fence rules that left people never knowing whether or not God loved them or not or whether they were right with Him or not. So, I would like you to take this and apply it to the message in tongues and the interpretation that we had today about some of the beliefs that you have about the Heavenly Father that are incorrect because you see Him as only a judge. As only a father that sets up all of these rules and then builds fences around them and tells you you can't go anywhere near those, you can begin to see the way that we can perceive the father in a difficult way. And Jesus comes and and sees the criticism of, of the Pharisees and decides to use this as a teachable moment. And so we see in Matthew 15, verses 10 through 12, says Jesus calls the crowd to him. And he says, listen and understand. In other words, what I'm about to say is so important and it's going to be so life-changing for me, you really need to pay attention to this. And and if you are a first-century Christian that had grown up in this very legalistic society, this would have been earth-shattering to you. And he says in verse 11, what goes into somebody's mouth does not defile them. For people who were defined by the Mosaic law, this would have been a shocking statement to them. They're like, "What? We, we have lived our whole lives with this definition of dietary laws that tells us, we can't eat this and we can't touch this." And Jesus is saying, "What goes into your mouth is not what defiles you." And then he continues this, and he says, it, "It's but what comes out of your mouth." And Jesus is specifically talking about the Pharisees here. It's what comes out of your mouth that defiles them. And then this particular interaction is recorded in both Matthew 15 and and Mark chapter 7. And in Mark chapter 7, it says that after Jesus has this conversation with the people and they're standing there with their mouths open because everything that they had thought about the dietary laws Jesus is challenging, he just kind of drops the mic and walks off. And the disciples are kind of following along behind him. And in verse 12, it says, Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that you just really, really offended the Pharisees when they heard this? And Jesus was going, This is my I don't care face. I'm not the least bit concerned about offending the Pharisees. He says, Because what you need to understand is that the law of God was not created in order for people to please God it was created to protect people. The law was created to protect people, not to please God. And so, when Jesus begins to say that people are not for the law but the laws are for people, and he says, and when you use the law to hurt people and divide people and to create enmity between God and people, you are abusing the law of God. Now, if you grew up in a religious system that you felt alienated from God because of the way people used the rules, or you got the impression that there's God and then there's all these rules and that finally, after all of that, you kind of fit into place of what God cares about the most, then I need you to know something. You have been taught incorrectly about the love of God. God is for you. God is a good parent. He's a great father. And when God established the law or a rule, it was for the good of his people that that law or rule was established for. And so Jesus, after throwing this out in front of these first first century Christians, begins just to walk off, and, and the disciples are chasing him, and they're saying, hey, 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 you may think that we understand what you just said, but we don't understand it. We just know there's a bunch of offended people back there. Can you explain this to us? And so Jesus realizes this is another teachable moment and it tells us in Matthew chapter 15 uh, verses 16 and 17 and this is kind of funny the way that Jesus responds here because he looks at his disciples and sits them down and he says are you so dull now I don't know how it feels to have Jesus specifically look you in the eye and go you are so dull but I think that's kind of funny and and they're sitting there going well we didn't think we were until you brought it up, and then Jesus asked them, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach, and then it leaves the body? And the disciples are looking at each other going, Jesus, we see that every single day. We know how the digestive system works in all of this. And so Jesus, now it goes just a little bit deeper, and he says in, in Mark seven twenty, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Not what goes in, but what comes out of the person is that what puts them at odds with God. And the disciples, you have to think, are sitting there, and in light of this conversation, they're going, let me get this straight. So using the bathroom puts me at odds with God? Is, is that what you're trying to say? And Jesus by now has their undivided attention just like I have your undivided attention because it's, it's only on Father's Day that we have bathroom talk and Jesus in the same paragraph and, and, and how all this works. So Jesus now knowing that they are fully engaged in this conversation smiles. And he says in verse 21, for from within, from within a person Out of a person's heart, the internal being, the soul, comes evil thoughts. And so the disciples are at first thinking, okay, so you're not talking about our bowels. We are talking now about evil thoughts that defile us, that come from the inside. And, And then it hits them. Oh, no. Are you saying that our thoughts can put us at odds with God? And Jesus is saying, yes, because everything harmful and everything harmful to us and other people begins as a thought within our heart. And then he goes on and he begins to list an example of things that become outward behaviors but had to be birthed first In the heart of men, when he says in verse 21, for from within, here's your soul, here's your heart, from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. Folly's not a a word we use very often, but it really, it can be translated as as bad judgment, making decisions that have a negative impact on you and on other people. And, and, And then Jesus says, listen, this is important. You need to know that all of these behaviors start if you don't tend your soul, if, if you don't tend your heart. And so the disciples thought for a moment, and, and, and in this interaction, they're going, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, because this, this changes everything for us, because those behaviors that you just listed are not directed at God which would defile my relationship with God. These behaviors are directed at other people. And Jesus says, yes. Now you're getting it. Hurting another person, disadvantaging another person puts you at odds with God. You cannot be right with God and mistreat another person. It's it's not just about making sure that this vertical relationship is good. Because if this relationship is good, then these relationships will be healthy. This ticked off the Pharisees who had made a lifestyle of saying, on the outside, I look great because I'm right with God, and as a result of that, I can treat everybody else any way I want. Even manipulating these fence laws, the oral Torah, the tradition of the elders, to manipulate people to do what I want. And so this was a huge shift that Jesus was introducing here. And in Mark 7:23, Jesus beginning to say, "This is going to characterize my new kingdom." He says, "All of these evils come from inside, and that is what defiles a person. The way you wash your hands does not defile a person," is what Jesus was saying. And here's the implication to us today. Pay attention to what is going on inside of you. Pay attention. And the reason this is important is because whatever attitudes you allow to fester in your soul don't stay there. You leak. You leak. And often we don't even recognize it, but the people around us do because they'll come near you and they'll walk away and go, what is up with them? And you're thinking everything is good and everybody else around you is going, no, man, you are leaking toxins all over all of us. And we don't know where it's coming from, but we know something is wrong. And our behavior will eventually reflect the conditions of our heart and souls. And so for an uncomfortable moment, let me replay for you some of the things that were listed in the Scripture. Immorality, adultery, theft, deceit, envy, greed, slander, bad judgment. Let me ask you a question, and I do not want to see your hands. How many of you know someone who at least one of these destroyed their marriage, destroyed their life, destroyed their career, destroyed their reputation? And every one of us would say, yes. Yes, and in some instance, we were shocked. How did that happen? And the answer is simple. At some point, they quit tending their soul, and they decided to manage the gap rather than to close the gap. So the second guardrail that I'm asking you to build in your life and protecting your soul is this. Monitor your heart. Monitor your heart. Pay attention to what is going on inside of you. We don't have any problem paying attention to what's going on on the outside. We take care care of ourselves to make sure we look good out here. But Jesus is saying, if you want to keep yourself from evil, you want to build a guardrail, make sure that what's going on on the inside of your heart is healthy and pure. And specifically, there are four things that I want to quickly leave you with today that you need to be on guard about within your heart. Monitor your heart against guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. Guilt, anger, greed, and jealousy. These four have the potential to rot your soul. And Jesus said, if you allow these to remain in your heart, ultimately they will defile you and put you at odds with God. And if you don't close the gap when you recognize them, they will define who you are because you leak the first one is guilt guilt says i owe you i have a secret i owe you the truth i owe you an apology i owe you restitution for what i took i owe you an apology for what i said you may not even know it yet, but I know inside that I owe you an apology because of things I've been doing to you or about you. And in this guilt that I'm allowing in my soul, I know that I owe you. And the solution to guilt is to confess. And when you confess, you're going to make a mess. And some of you are going, well, pfft, that's not what I wanted to hear today. I want to hear that, you know, God comes in and he changes everything and that He restores everything in an instant. Let me tell you something. When you've managed the gap, you've already created the mess. At some point, what you do is you realize, I'm tired of managing this. I'm tired of trying to pretend to be one way and and here. And so today, I'm inviting God into this situation, and I'm going to man up or I'm going to woman up, and I'm going to confess, and I'm going to let the Lord walk with me through this so that in the end, I will be healed and I will be made whole. I am tired of guilt sitting in my soul and rotting me. And when you invite the Lord into that, God begins to restore as you close that gap of guilt. The second one is anger. And the driver behind anger is you owe me. You owe me. Whenever you're angry, it's because something has been taken from you or you're not getting what you deserve or you're not getting what you want. But in the big anger, and some of you today have been carrying big anger, and you've carried it for a long time, and and there have been big things that have been taken from you. Maybe you're here today, and you're angry because somebody took your marriage, or, or, or somebody was unfaithful to you, and they took something precious, or maybe you're angry because of the way that somebody treated you, and you're struggling now with trust issues that linger long beyond the event itself and and maybe you're sitting here today and you're angry because somebody took your childhood. They took your innocence. Maybe you're angry today because somebody took your reputation or your self-respect and they owe you and you're angry about it. I mean, they really owe you. It isn't imaginary. They took something real from you but here's what you need to know. They can't give back to you what they took, even if they wanted to. Well, that's not helpful. Nope. And the solution, and we all know the solution, the solution is to forgive. And frankly, if I had a chance to sit down with some of you and you begin to tell me your story of the anger and the things that you're carrying around, I would hear your story and I probably would take your side. And I'd say, you know what? What they did to you, what they said to you, (laughs) you know what? I'm going to give you a pass on the forgiving thing, but you also need to know something else. Your Savior who loves you more than I could ever love you your Savior, who knows more about the details of the event that have caused you to carry anger in your soul, is not going to give you a pass. He's going to require that you forgive. And the reason is because he knows what resentment is doing to your soul. And he says, come on. You need to cancel this debt You've got to forgive because it is rotting your soul. And everywhere you go, you leak. And healing can only come if you'll just write it off and forgive. The third attitude that can rot our soul is greed. And this is an interesting one because it's not something that we, we talk about often. and We certainly don't admit it out loud. But... Greed is fueled by the consumption assumption. And and that consumption assumption is this. If it comes to me, it is for me. If it's placed in my hands, it's for my hands. It's going to stay in my hands. If I earn it, if I inherit it, if it's given to me, if it comes to me, it is for me. And in the middle of all of that, greed says, I owe me. I owe me. I owe me everything that comes to me. And what you don't know is that it forces people to compete with your stuff. And people don't compete very well with the things that you have. There are some people that are afraid to go to your house because your stuff is more important than they are. And they're afraid of you. And we've got a lot of ways of getting around this. And we justify ourselves. And and here's the way it starts. I'm not greedy. I'm just careful. I'm not greedy. I'm just really responsible. I'm not greedy. I just like nice stuff. I'm not greedy. I am just preparing for the future. And it sounds great until you begin to recognize that greed is infesting your soul. And what is covering up is a tremendous lack of generosity. And generosity is realizing that everything that comes to you is not necessarily for you. But there are things that God will put in your hand hoping that you will act in obedience to make sure it gets to the people that need it. And so that's what God wants of you. Some of you are living lives and greed is sitting in your soul and it's keeping you from being generous. And today you need to make a decision that percentage-wise you're going to start giving to God what belongs to Him. Systematically organized, planned tithing, generous offerings. This is generosity. And greed will rot your soul and it trickles out and takes a toll in every other aspect of your life if you will let it. And you know what the solution is to this, don't you? Give. It's to give. Give extravagantly, consistently, with a plan to do something that makes a difference in the world. It's your way of saying to your stuff, stuff, I own you. You don't own me. I will not be owned by the things of this world and greed, you are not the boss of me. And as you begin to give, you give first until it hurts. Then you give until it becomes easy. Then you give until it becomes a habit. Then you begin to recognize that no matter what you give, you can never outgive God. But that little voice of greed can rot your soul. And then lastly, jealousy. This is an ugly one. Because jealousy shows up when we celebrate when other people fail. Because suddenly we think we look better in comparison to them. And we don't say this out loud. Oftentimes it's just on the inside, but here's the way jealousy shows up. When something happens and we look at them and say, serves them right. You know, in the church world, we've got a way around this. We're jealous, and this is the way we present it. You know, we got to pray for Frank. Do you know what's going on in his life? We just got to pray for him. Let me share the details of that with you. And, and we stick it under the umbrella of something spiritual, and jealousy seethes out of our life. Frank, if you're here today, I'm sorry. You know what drives jealousy is that life owes me. Life owes me. And interesting enough about this one is that if you dig under the dirt just a little bit, what you come to is the foundation of what you're really saying is that God owes me. God, you, you haven't done right by me. You could have made me taller. You could have made me differently. You could have given me different opportunities. You could have made me richer. You could have made me born into a different family, a different country, a different circumstance. You could have done all of these things and you didn't. And so we admit it in our hearts and and this jealousy begins to see that God owes me because God hasn't done enough for me. And the answer to getting rid of jealousy over our souls is to celebrate. Celebrate what God has done. Learning to celebrate is a process which moves us out of a jealous nature into a nature of praise. Let me tell you how this has lived out for some of us. There are people that you need to go to and congratulate them because they got a job you could do. Sometimes we sit back and go, I. I can't believe that they're being celebrated for this. I should have been the one selected for that. And, and the way you break that is you get up and you go to them and you congratulate them. You're the first in line and you celebrate and you begin to celebrate not only what they've done, you begin to celebrate what God has done in you rather than looking like God owes you. You begin to count your blessings for what God has done. And in the middle of all of that, as you begin to celebrate... You begin to look out for those four villains of your soul, and you build a guardrail, and you monitor your heart, and you say, I will not live in such a way that there's a huge gap between my reputation and my character. I'm going to recognize it, and I'm going to close it instantly, and I'm going to come before the Lord because those four things are bad guys, and they only take stuff from me. So here's the Father's Day portion of this message for you. And as we close... I want you to think about this brief exercise. Number one, Proverbs 4.23 says this as it relates to these issues in your soul. Above all else, can the Word of God state it any more clearly how important it is to care for our soul? Above all else, guard your heart because you leak. And out of it, Comes the wellspring of life. So dads, here's how you teach your children to monitor their hearts. At night, when you're sitting with them, right before they go to sleep, just ask them some questions. Questions like, hey, is everything okay in your heart today? And if they say, well, what does that mean? Well, you might follow it up with, is there anybody that made you angry today that you feel like owes you an apology? Or is there anything that you did today where you feel like maybe you owe somebody else an apology? And and while you're presenting these things, you're constantly teaching them how to monitor their soul from very early in their life. And they begin to recognize, if it's important to Dad, it must be something that's supposed to be important to me. And the way I want to conclude this this morning is I want every man in this room, 13 years of age or older, would you stand and come and stand along the front? I want to pray a prayer over you today. Some of you over here may have to scoot this direction. All the overflow men are filing up one aisle. This is not a shock to you, but we live in a society that is actively at war against biblical masculinity, absolutely a war. And some of the things that our culture is afraid of is because masculinity has been portrayed in, in, in such a domineering fashion. And the Heavenly Father demonstrates to us today of His great mercy and love and the things that He does to protect and cherish us. And it's easy for us to back down. And I'm I'm saying, men today, we need to stand up and say, you know what? I'm going to take my soul before the Lord and make sure that there's no duplicity in my life. And the moment that It captures me. The moment I see something going on that I'm stepping in there, I'm going to stand there, I'm going to confess this, I'm going to address this issue because I do not want to be one person to everybody around me and another person that I look in the mirror and I know these things are going on in me. So God, help me build the guardrail of monitoring my heart. Because if God helps you monitor your heart, people are going to love to be around you. Your families are going to speak highly of you because of what you invest into them. And there are young men here today. I, everybody 13 years and, old, and older, I want you to know something. We need three types of men in our life. We need those younger than us so we can mentor them. We need those our same age that are peers that can speak into our life. And then we need those who are older than us that, that exemplify what I want to be when I get there. And I want you to know that there's a great strength that is represented around this altar today. And it doesn't matter what condition you may find yourself in today, we have found ourselves in a place where we can get it right. And our world needs for us to get godly masculinity right. So Father, I pray over this phenomenal group of men that are standing here, You created each of us individually and your fingerprints are all over us. You created us, oh God, to be one with you in spirit. That who we are on the inside is to be the same of who we are on the outside. And Lord, There are some who are here today that are so tired of trying to manage the gap and trying to keep the reputation when they know the character is not there. And I pray today that you would bring these things together as we stand before you and say, I will care for my soul. Number one, I will surrender who I am to you and the will of God. And number two, I will guard my heart so that the things that would pollute me and rot my soul that would cause me to have a gap are rooted out the instant they show up. And then I pray, Lord God, for these who are fathers, that they would teach their children and teach their grandchildren how to navigate life by giving care to their soul for it is what comes from within that defiles. And Lord, as we begin to recognize this, may we ask that you do that work in our soul. And so I pray your blessing over these men as they honor you as they faithfully follow you, as they love their families, sacrifice for them and cherish them. May we honor you since we've been given such a great example of a heavenly father. And may we look just like you as we live our life. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day.